Welcome to The Writing Life, the podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Steph McKenna. And I'm James Gill. From the National Centre for Writing here at Dragon Hall in Norwich, England. We are super excited to bring you this month's podcast, How to Grip Your Readers, with the amazing Julia Crouch. Julia is a crime and noir novelist, so she really knows how to grip readers. And this episode has dozens of great tips for writers of all genres. Julia explains how characters and their development can grip readers. She explains how we can build narrative tension and how conflict is a key driver of a reader's attention. We also discuss the role of dead bodies, how to create and use twists, as well as lots of great technical tips on how to sow the seeds of intrigue. Julia Crouch, the queen of domestic noir, has written seven novels, including Cuckoo, The Longfall, her new novel The Daughters and Tarnished, which you guys chat about in the episode. Julia is also the tutor for our Start Writing Crime Fiction course, which starts in January. So if you want to kickstart your crime novel and you, like me, think Julia sounds like a brilliant tutor, why not head over to the website to explore the course modules? Those courses are on sale now for the January 2023 term, and we've got beginners and advanced courses in genres including fiction, historical fiction, creative non-fiction, poetry, memoir, and our new screenwriting course. In addition to our courses, we hold various in-person and online events. So if you're in the area, you might like to attend one of the following forthcoming events. The Republic of Reading Gala here at Dragon Hall. It's on November the 12th. The Women's Poets Festival also here on November the 19th. And we also have the ever-popular City of Literature Publishing Fair coming up on December the 3rd. These are just a few of the events, so head to the website for full listings. I have to say I'm very excited for the City of Literature Publishing Fair. We hosted one back in May as part of Norfolk and Norwich Festival and it was a lot of fun and it was packed full of brilliant people. So now, without further delay, here is Julia Crouch. Welcome, Julia. Thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time out to speak to us today. I'm very excited to have our conversation about how to grip readers. But I think uh, we'd, uh, I'd, I'm keen to get just a little sort of potted history of, of, uh, of who you are. And of course, I can see your books behind you. Um, and I've, I've dipped the first hundred pages of Tarnished. So I'm, um, I'm ready to talk about how to grip it. The, the nasty discovery in Whitstable, yes. That's it, right. But then I'm, I'm more intrigued with some of the other bits and pieces that are coming through the family. But I'm, I'm sure we'll get to that. Um, but give us a bit of a, um, a sort of a potted history of, of you, Julia, um, and, and your relationship with us here at the Writing Centre. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. I'm very pleased to be here. Um, so, uh, so I started out in theatre. Uh, my, my, my degree, my first degree was in, in drama and I was a theatre director and devising writer. So that meant I wrote plays, but in a rehearsal room with actors, um, uh, sort of in a Mike Lee-ish sort of style. So character led and, and from improvisations and then scripting and structuring, which is kind of relevant to how I write now. Um, uh, but then, but then at about the age of 30, 32, I decided that I needed to stay at have a job that would pay me well to stay at home and because I had two children and my partner's an actor so he's away a lot as well so we're both going to be away a lot not earning a great deal which isn't ideal when you've got young children so um so I retrained um sort of got free funding back in the day you know when you were poor you could get free funding to train um and I did an HND in visual communication and became a graphic designer which I was for 10 years, I was a graphic designer stroke, and then I became a website designer because we're talking kind of 90s, uh, beginning of the 2000s, um, and got it very deeply into coding and, and stuff like that. But something was unfulfilled. 
and I went. I did, I ended up doing an MA in in sequential illustration, telling stories with pictures because I thought I was uh, pictures, not words. And uh, I discovered on that course where I was with a whole bunch of kind of all my peers were incredibly visually literate. Most of them had done uh, their first degrees had been in fine art or illustration, and they'd done art foundation and everything. They come through that stream, which I certainly hadn't. Um, and and whereas they were all struggling with the words part of the course, I was kind of like dashing it off in the evening. And um, and I wrote and illustrated two children's books, and I really found the writing part of that, the coming up with the words, but and the story in words, by far the easiest element. The pictures, I have so much respect for illustrators because you have so many more choices. Because not only do you have story and words and, and, and all of that, you also have line, form, shape, composition, character, colours, texture, medium, whether you use whether you use a line or not, um, you know, all of those sorts of things. And the decision making is mammoth and the capacity to make massive balls ups is enormous that then mean you have to go back and start again. So I found that incredibly hard. And then I thought, right, OK, I'm going to explore this words thing a bit more. And I did a couple of open university writing courses, which I really, really enjoyed and learned so much about craft. And that kind of is relevant to why we're here today, really, because I believe that there's 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 three elements to becoming a, a successful writer. Um, and by successful, I mean one that's happy with with the writing that you're doing, not necessarily kind of published by a you know kind of big five of publisher. Um, one is talent and kind of aptitude, which is innate, and some people have that. One is craft, and one is hard, hard work. And I think you can get by with two, any two of those. <laughs> um and I've certainly I've had I've done a lot of teaching and um I have um I have seen writers beginner writers who I thought "Eh, you know they're they're trying hard and 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 there's something there but and then they have worked and worked and worked and they have listened to what they've been taught and they've listened to their peers and they've listened to their feedback and they have grown as writers and some of them have gone on to be published so, you know, it can happen. I think I was lucky because I have a words thing. I've always had a fascination with words and I've loved telling stories. That's in, you know, that's in my family. My nana would go on and on and on. She she wasn't a great writer, but she was certainly a great storyteller. And um, and nana, you'll recognise from as as she's quite close to, to the gran in, in Tarnish, although she doesn't get up to quite everything that the gran in Tarnish does, which we won't talk about more. Um, so I was very encouraged by one of my tutors, John O'Donoghue, who is a um, he's a he's a teacher, a memoirist, and a poet based in here in Brighton. He's one of my open university teachers, and his kind of confidence in my abilities helped me go take things further. I wrote a few short, short stories, read them out at short story nights with my knees audibly knocking, and then I did Nano Rimo, National Novel Writing Month, which if anyone listening hasn't hasn't heard of it's where you literally write a novel in a month I think they do it several months throughout the year now but back when I was doing it it was the month of November hundreds of thousands of people around the world buckle down write 1700 words a day seven days a week for 30 days and you end up this is the amazing thing you end up with 50,000 words which is in terms of length the catcher in the rye in terms of quality not quite (laughs) but but the thing is that you you write fast and you write dirty and um, I was one of those people and I'm sure lots of people 
chime with this, who kind of would write the first three chapters, want to write a novel, have a great idea, write the first three chapters, run out of steam, think, oh, I started in the wrong place, go back, start again, end up again, first three, for the second go at the first three chapters. Same thing, go back, never get any further than that. The speed with which you have to write with NaNoWriMo stops you stalling like that. And you have yeah. to go on and you know, and you have to go on with the knowledge that you can go back and fix it later, which is something I have carried with me through my seven so far published novels that, you know, that's how you get through. That's how you climb that mountain. That's how, how I climb it anyway. I have bags of insecurity and self-doubt and I go through these moments of feeling everything's hopeless and I can't do it. And whoever thought, why on earth did I ever think I could do that? And I go through that with every novel. And I know that most of my published friends who are published writers also have these moments. And it can hit at any point between, I'd say, about 10,000 to 40,000 words. For me, it's around 30,000 words where I go, oh, my God, what is all this? And But I'm so far in by that time. Uh, to quote Macbeth, to go back would be as tedious as to go oh, or something like that. But he's in blood so steep so far. I'm in story steep so far. Um, so, so I, so I just have to forge on, and and I know that I can go back. I will go back and rewrite probably quite a large chunk of the beginning. Okay, and I mean, but you are perfectly positioned to uh, to talk about this this topic of how to grip one's reader. Uh, and again, I read a bunch of the reviews from your 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 books. I don't know if there is a more complimentary word than unputdownable, which was one that um, I've seen in in review of of your books. Uh, I then went on to purchase a copy of Tarnished, your twenty thirteen book, and I've read the first hundred pages. And I have to say, I mean, I'm gripped, right? So uh, for all of those reasons, I rest my case. Uh, let's talk about how to grip one's writer uh, one's reader sorry so if you're happy to a, a couple of sort of broad questions about gripping the readers we can get into some technical some specific bits my first question is a broad one what is it that makes something gripping is it is it is emotional is it action is it relationship to topic what are the, the broad things that make something gripping okay so there are well, I mean, there's two elements sort of in the very broadest terms there's plot and character and you really, really have to care, care about the characters. You don't have to like them, but you have to care about what happens to them. And I think that that's, that's one thing that you have to... They have to have a level of emotional um, investment in the characters. You have to believe the story world. So you have to kind of... There's, there should be nothing in it that chimes as odd. Do you know what I mean? There has to be... That, it has to be coherent. You have to create... A, there has to be a coherent world that you will buy into. This is all about caring. You, you, have, you have to buy in 100% to the world that you're reading. Um, if, if there are bits that make you go, hey, what's that? What does that mean? Uh, how did that happen? Then, then you'll step outside and you, you, you cease to be gripped. So you, you have to remain within the story. But there's also the story as well. As, um, and there's always kind of like arguments about what's the most important story or plot or character. And in crime fiction, lots of people say, well, plot's most important. Well, I, I, I completely disagree with that. I think that the two of them should grow together. So uh, plot is what happens, essentially, and why happens as well. And um, it, it's, it is due to the actions of the characters. The characters make things happen. So you have to kind of... When I'm when I'm developing my story outlines, I um, I, the character and the story kind of develop hand in hand, but at some point the characters take over and they go, I wouldn't do that. So then you have to find ways of, 
of of engineering a situation so that they will do that because you need that need them to do that for the story but if you make it too kind of false and and the engineering structure too too obvious then it again the reader will step outside because they'll go they wouldn't do that because by that point they know and care about the characters as well as you do they'll probably have a very different visual image of the character and i don't really totally understand it but when I'm writing, like at the, min- at the minute, I'm, I'm developing a new novel and I just last night sent off to my uh, agent the kind of, I, I write about a 5,000 page story outline, what happens? And I already know my protagonist so well and I, I know what she looks like, I know what she's doing almost in any given situation. So actually kind of, um, I, think, I, think that, I think that the writer has to get that level of intimacy with their characters in order for the book to be gripping and unput downable, and but but there also have to be in terms of crime fiction there have to be things that that the reader kind of doesn't see coming, but then when they happen the reader goes of course you can't have Deus Ex Machina you can't have something coming completely mm. out of the blue, you have to plant seeds all along the way and as a writer that for me that comes at various points in 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 the writing process so I won't necessarily if something appears if Chekhov's gun appears in the fourth act. Um, I might not have written it in in the in the first, so I have to go back and place mm. it there. I mean, I'm talking about a metaphorical gun. Sometimes it's a very sure. literal gun. <laughs> I, right. I learned that with my first book, Cuckoo, um, where the copy editor said I had a I had a character I had a character stuck in stuck in a room and she had to get out. It was, sorry, it was the line editor said. Um, There's a gun in the house, remember? Because one of the that Gareth, the husband, had had, uh, had shot a rabbit. And I went, of course. So I, I went on and rewrote that last scene with, with uh, including the gun, which kind of gave it a whole le- new level of danger. Um, so yes, yeah, so planting things that the reader doesn't see as a plant, so you can't very obviously plant something, but uh, but just kind of casu- you know, mention it. I'm sorry, I wanted to add, to add in and ask as well, because when I, when I started reading Tarnished, I have a book at home and I have a book at work, and then I had, I had your book as well. Um, and so Tarnished is... It's crime fiction. I was reading a J.G. Ballard short story. The, the setting is that the world has stopped turning and so that everywhere around the world is, a, is one time. And then the other book I'm reading, which I've just finished, is David Mitchell's um, Thousand Autumns of Jacob Zoot. Now, they're three very different books, but I was gripped in each of them by different things. So the bit I wanted to ask, you mentioned plot and character, but the J.G. Ballard, I kind of, the setting kind of gripped me. I like science fiction, I like fantasy. And so it's it's the sort of the what if, what if the world stopped? What if you were in space? What if aliens arrived? Is that sort of part of, of the mix? And is that certain types of reader? Yeah, I start every novel actually with a what if. I start off, usually I say, I start off with a situation, a what if, a setting, because setting is very important to me. And uh, a kind of, I call it a smell, but it's a kind of, you know, a kind of sense of what, what the, the kind of atmosphere I want to create. So, yeah, what if is really important. But for me, that what if is more a question to, is a more a question to kick off the ideas, the story ideas. And I don't know how much it is eclipsed by the resulting novel. Do you see what I mean? That it's kind of yeah. so buried in there. I mean, you could pair it right back. But unless I said to you, you know, for example, with, with, with Cuckoo, what if a woman inspired 
the same level of passion in you. This is what got me going with that. The same level of passion in you as PJ Harvey did in <coughs> Nick Cave, so he wrote The Boatman's Call. And that woman happened to be your best friend. That's the what if. So that's, that was the whole thing that set the idea of Cuckoo going. Um, it's um, actually there's a, a fantasy writer who said that the setting often grips readers of fantasy and science fiction, but the setting can't then propel you all the way through. So it's 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 a, a sort of short term. Ooh, that sounds interesting. But if if to your point, the plot and the character don't follow, then it's not going to get you through the twelve hundred pages of one of those sort of space. Well, operas. so suppose unless you're writing a very extreme form of science fiction, the setting is is essentially an inert. <laughs> thing yes. isn't it although i have to say a novel that is yet to find a home which i'm i have great hopes for um that i've written called uh called well it was called the childminder but it's become the witch house and that's telling is told uh, certain parts of the novel are told from the point of view of a house an old house which has see it's an old trillo in in puglia it has secrets in its in its in its stones and it has memories um and and I say things like, if a house could feel, this house would feel angry at what's going on or whatever. But, you know, let's, I'm having fun as a writer. But, so yeah, not always a setting can have a little bit more dynamism to it. But I don't suppose, well, I suppose anything can happen in fiction, can't it? I was going to say a setting can't influence a plot, but of course it can. Of course it can. You know, can you be, can you be truly miserable in certain settings? And if you are, then that makes that makes the story stronger. So if you're in a beautiful place, but you've got a character who's feeling totally miserable, that's a much more interesting proposition than if she's feeling miserable in a in a in a doomy moor somewhere. True, true. And just quickly on on the Mitchell, I'm not really uh, I don't read much of that sort of type of thing. Although I like David Mitchell, it was particularly just his writing. It's just it's such beautiful writing. So that was grip it gripped in that. But when I read Tarnished. Exactly as you describe, I've got the uh, the vision, and I, there's no spoilers here. We won't um, have to go um, uh, for anyone who may pick it up. Is the metal detector person in um, on the beach in Kent? And immediately, because I'm aware of you know the kind of thing that you write, I'm already excited because you know that that's what you do when you do metal detecting. You're finding something, and and then finds the the, the blonde lady's head. Um, but then, and then I'm I'm sort of zapped out of that first. Um, chapter, which is totally gripping, because of course, to your point earlier, it's, I'm asking questions. Who is she? What happened to her? Why just the head? Are we going to know, etc.? What um, what led to it? But then beyond that, I get the the protagonist uh, Peg, and I get her story, which is in itself also gripping. There are a couple of different things going on. Uh, I have to say, the the grandmother with her passing in and out of memory and so on is also like, oh my god, what are we going to find out? Can we find out? So I just felt reading it through a lunch break and a bit more. It's sort of almost just like adrenalized coming off the end of it. So you're clearly an expert. It's interesting. Talk us through the devices at a sort of a craft level of, of deploying all of those elements. And that's that's within the first like 85 pages. Yeah. So so I think I, I am quite a big fan of prologues. Um, I think I think particularly with with my kind of fiction, which I, I say that the, the domestic noir uh, tends to subvert the uh, tradition, or the, most psychological thrillers tend to subvert the traditional kind of crime fiction trajectory, which is the traditional one is uh, disruption, body, murder, found, and then gradually the detective with the with the any other protagonist and um, and the reader 
work together to put the world to rights and you end up with an ordered world. The, the trajectory of a sort of psychological thriller stroke domestic noir is a depiction of a, of a fairly perfect world at, which is dismantled. And so the characters are changed at the end in the same way as they... In a, you have to have a character changing. That's, that's an important part of, of being gripping. A, character, a novel is a character's journey. And they are different at the end to how they are at the beginning. In a psychological thriller, their world is disrupted. So they're in a worse place, usually. Or they've learnt through something terrible. And they've moved a step in, a, in another direction by the end. So if you're starting off with a perfect world, and I, I learned this from my first agent, because everyone says, well, lots of students say to me, I understand that a prologue's a bad thing and, and agents don't like them. In fact, my first agent made me put a prologue into cooking my first book because he said, you, the first couple of chapters read like an Argus saga. We don't know that it's going to be turned nasty. So what I've done is put a very, very short it's a gory prologue. It's like, it's like, it's like a, a paragraph and it gives a flavour and a sense of what's going to happen. So, so yeah, so prologues are very important to give. If, you, if you're going to go dark, they're very important. I find them not important, useful to give a sense of colour, the possibly lighter opening chapters of establishing the world that is about to be disrupted by whatever is discovered. Okay. So I'm sort of watching various people and doing my own research sort of online and what have you. I've discovered this, the concept of the promise. And is, is essentially, when we talk about what's, what's gripping and how to grip people, is that really about the promise? So the promise of the first few pages of Tarnished are that I'm going to find out what happens to this person. And that that's for having the prologue is a great way of making that promise as early as possible. Because always the challenges with the info dump and you know scene setting is less exciting whereas you'll get through that if you've been given a promise at the beginning yeah although i would i would really always advise against info dumping that there has to be it has to be framed within character and story and and also i'd kind of say that the other thing is and possibly that's something that isn't quite so evident in my early novels but certainly i'm very brutal with now if something does if something doesn't earn its place by advancing things narratively, it has to go. So even if it's yeah. lovely, a lovely bit of writing, you just have to lose it. So, for example, in Tarnish, there was a wonderful scene. I loved it so much where, where we learned more about Loz and Peg because we went back to Loz's parents' house um, for a rather bohemian North London uh, sort of dinner. And, and it was a whole chapter and it was very funny and, and, and it showed all the different the class differences and, and the way that, you know, kind of Peg was seen as a kind of... The, the, these liberal North London parents kind of loved having a lesbian daughter and loved having a lesbian daughter whose, whose partner was a black woman and all of that kind of thing. And I just thought, this can almost be a lovely short story on its own, it, but it, it's just kind of flesh. And there was too much flesh at that point, so something had to go. It had to go on a bit of a diet. The story, so I, so I took that out and just oh, I just refer to it now. I mean, that's all it needed was a refer, re- reference to it. So so yes, I think you have to be you have to be really brutal in that way. And and almost every novel I write, there's at least one chapter that goes wholesale, just goes. But then then right down to the sentence level, if a sentence doesn't advance things narratively, off it goes. It just goes. So any detail. Because a novel is a story told through details and every detail has to work towards that story. So don't, you know, don't go on about the leaves on the trees unless they do something to the characters, do something to the mood, 
kind of do something to the reader. They can't just you can't just have pretty set dressing. Yeah, and uh, and actually another thing that I've seen in um, in your advice and guide articles and podcasts that you said before is that you made me think of with your nice uh, vignette there at the North London dinner is conflict. And it's interesting having since reading that sort of a month or two ago, I'm now reading through the eyes of every chapter and scenes within that. What is the conflict? And sometimes it's kind of it's light conflict, but I can see in the good writing that I'm that I'm reading. Yeah, there is conflict in every kind of... There's always some friction going on. So is that, that's another key element of, of, of conti- particularly continuing to grip people throughout. Was that one of the reasons that that scene had to go? Was there conflict within it? Yeah, well, there was conflict in that in the kind of Peg felt incredibly uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, she doesn't like going there at all because she kind of feels a bit like a kind of... I don't know, a trophy, trophy wife kind of thing for for, for loss there. But um, yes, I think uh, that's why I'm, I think so many writers and so many readers are drawn to crime fiction because conflict is, is if you get it right down to the nub, conflict is, is at the very essence of crime fiction. It's, um, it's obviously characters in conflict with the law, uh, conflict, and characters in conflict with the, the, the kind of moral norms, uh, the normal expectations, characters in conflict uh, with the world outside and with themselves uh, doing things that they don't necessarily think is right or that they don't want to do or that kind of get in the way of their aims and in terms of kind of like the overall conflict of a of a plot another kind of basic plot kind of dynamic is that your your character your protagonist wants something and this is something again my first agent who taught me a lot Simon True and he's a wonderful agent he said what does your character want You've got to know that at the beginning. And then, so that is what drives the story through to the end. And the plot is the curveballs you throw at them to stop them getting what they want. I think it's another one of those great maxims I heard again in podcasts and and what have you that writers say around this. And it might even be a Stephen King quote, of which there are, of course, so many to, to quote. But it says, you know, a novel is the statement of what the protagonist wants and then 800 pages of them not getting it or or words to that effect and I think from my own sort of hobby experience is that that was certainly one of the reasons that my first you know hobby novel didn't work is that the protagonist wasn't a protagonist they were just a complete spectator to the stuff going on around them didn't really have a horse in the race until sort of the middle and so really it's just like watching a tv show in a foreign language that you don't care about already so it's conflict promises etc to know that those things need to be in there Mm. Absolutely. And this is what I mean about craft. If you know these things, then actually creating a story that grips, it's far easier. I mean, it's never easy, but it's a lot easier if you know the tricks, you know, you know, the kind of the the tropes. Um, And that's not to say that one should write by to a pattern. But these are just kind of like, if you like, the kind of the scaffold around which your unique story can be told that the, the washing line that you can hang your story pegs on use a more domestic metaphor can i ask as well so have there been um and probably in your earlier writing where where we're starting to see the nuts and bolts, starting to be able to see the whole and know what's going on at various points because until you've written a lot or you've helped you know you've been good at plotting and structuring whether it's in your mind or using excel spreadsheets it's just a load of words until you go right well i know i'm blocking so this is the gripping bit here's the the reveal and here's the resolution until you get there it's just 
a giant long train of words. So I wonder, were there any experiences that you had sort of early on where you were learning how to grip? Because again, it's just, it was so deft um, in Tarnish as I read it. But I wonder, was there a time when you were sort of starting out when you were like, oh, I'm going to move this or I need to amplify this or... Uh, well, no, not really. I think, I think, <laughs> I think as, as time's gone on, I've applied those theories more because, well, I'll talk about the because later. But I think, I think that basically... Most of us, through our read, most of us, most of us who are writers are readers as well, and and we're also kind of we probably consumers of kind of film, which is kind of uh, always uh, an exercise in structure, and television series, particularly now these long form kind of like twelve part, better called Sauls and stuff like that. They're they're kind of they're masterpieces of structure, and f- for a lot of us, because of all that consumption, it's it's fairly innate. And I think that there is the kind of the reason that, you know, we've got three act structures and, and you know, when you plant things, you should plant them in, in threes or on un, uneven numbers, you know, because there is something pleasing, satisfying and kind of like uh, visceral, natural in us that finds that a good, a good thing. Particularly in Western culture, I don't know about, about world cultures, other world cultures, but certainly for us in the West, that is something that is innate in our understanding of story. So for me... The first few books were fairly just, you know, I sat down and wrote them. I did a real Stephen King, which is, you know, he starts with a situation and then he just writes, uh, pantsing, but to use yeah. the NaNoWriMo term. And I absolutely did that. And then, there, of course, there's a lot of organisation that goes on after the act. But I never really kind of consciously applied a three-act structure until probably after Tarnished, in fact. More like... Uh, her husband's lover, perhaps, and then the last few I've been very conscious. Kind of, you know, I've 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 got a, well, I have had I've I've got rid of that now because I I tend to use Scrivener, the virtual corkboard, but I I arrange the scenes as I'm developing the scenes, and I plot I plot now, I plot, I have index cards, virtual index cards, um, and I have them arranged in three acts, and I and I use um, Alex. Oh look, I've got it right here. In fact. I've got Alexandra Sokolov's book, Stealing Hollywood, Story Structure Secrets for Writing Your Best Book. And Alex is a, is a crime writer, but she's also been a Hollywood screenwriter. And so she knows all about structure. And it's a really, you know, it's a really thick book. Um, and uh, and it's, it's got lots and lots of kind of uh, deconstruction of film structure, but some, also some very, very useful outlines of, of what should happen where and when. And and I find and that incredibly reassuring and helpful, particularly when you're writing. Oh God, the last year I wrote two novels from scratch in 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 twelve months, and um, and that was because that's what my publisher wanted me to do, um, and I thought it was a challenge. Um, I don't know how many years I could carry on doing that. Um, not not very long, I fear. But um, in order to do that successfully, I needed to know what I was writing. I didn't have time to go back and kind of really, um, really tidy up a very messy story. I could tidy up some very messy words, but I needed my story structure, the what happens. So story is what happens and plot is what happens and why. So, so as I develop the story, the, the, the why comes as well in the plot and then I arrange it all. And um, I find I know that now. So I do what I used to think was incredibly boring. I have a whole load of empty virtual index cards on my Scrivener, which have, I know what's got to happen in each chapter or each scene. And that's how I start writing. And I know my characters and I know my world. I have found the lo- those two novels I wrote in six, in, in six months each. 
I found them the most ple- it's the most been the most pleasurable writing I've ever done, and partly that was because I had I, I had this this road map, but also partly because I was working with a brilliant brilliant editor Ruth Tross at Bookuture who's literally one of the best in the game she's fantastic so she she and I she signed off my story before I started writing so I knew it was solid if Ruth thinks it works man it works so I kind of I felt like I had my already had my belt and braces on before I put my trousers up you see what I mean (laughs) and I mean there's so much in there particularly with structure um, and and plotting and and Scrivener I know people use various things that that are similar that to help sort of structure again I cannot imagine writing anything cohesive by the seat of my pants I have to plot have to see everything have to be able to navigate you know know what the end is to navigate through it but my understanding is that crime can be important to plot because you at least would need to know who the killer is or the reason or anything or can you literally just unfold it would seem almost impossible really yeah i mean with tarnished i didn't really i i did a complete about turn the person i thought was going to be the baddie isn't and i only came to that realization about halfway in okay so i surprised myself does that mean though that there are things that you've set up to be x but then you've changed it to Y, and so some things need unpicking. Oh, yes. Or is it... Yeah, okay, you, okay. yeah, yeah, you can't... I mean, yes, yes, because because going that way, there's a wonderful E.L. Doctorow quote that I use quite a lot, is that, uh, obviously, I, I don't believe this now, but it's, it's something that is what I used to do. Driving, uh, writing a novel is like driving a car at night. You know where you come from, you know where your destination is, but you can only see as far as the car headlights light up on the way. And that's that's a that's a wonderful metaphor for for writing like that. And um, and the other one I use is my own, which is um, so the first draft for me. So so a creative act is the world of choice. You've got all you've got the entire universe of choice, and the creative act is a series of decisions you make. So if you think of the world of choice as a forest, and you've got to get to the other side of the forest, for me the first draft is putting my hands over my ears, shutting my eyes and just running as fast as I can (laughs) and trying to find my way through. And then the second draft is me going back and then picking over every twig and branch and finding out whether that was the right decision. So that's that's that was how I used to write. Um, And it's 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 great fun. It's invigorating. And it's certainly um, certainly um, enjoyable as long as you don't have a deadline. (laughs) Because, because you can then end up with a pile of just incoherent nonsense that then you have to spend years and years writing. There's a wonderful book, uh, sort of rewriting. There's a wonderful book, uh, Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott, which is uh, one of, along with Stephen King's on writing, is is my bible, Um, and she talks about about the shitty first draft, and then sort of, and about she talks about a novel that wouldn't go away and never got published. And sitting down there and taking it apart and putting it back together and taking it apart and putting it back together. And I, I have had those experiences. And you can go through such extremes of despair when you've got something that you know doesn't work. Your agent or your editor has told you that it doesn't work. And you have to make it work. And it can be so awful. And sometimes you just want to sit down, just tear it all up and start all over again with a completely new premise. Because, all, of course, the novel that you haven't written is perfect. Whereas the novel yes. you have written is always flawed, always, even if you're happy with it. It's still very different and flawed to the original vision that you had when you started. 
But, you know, yes, uh, I think that uh, the other thing, I said there's three things you need to become a successful novel. I would probably add the, the, fine, the other one, the fourth, is uh, bloody-mindedness and determination to make it work. And almost like a stubbornness with yourself. That, that you will get moments where things all look awful and hopeless and they won't work. And, and for some people, that starts, you know, that's the beginning of their career. For me, it kind of hit me sort of in the middle of, you know, after about four or five books. And I, I, I felt like a bit lost as a writer. But I managed to get my, my mojo back. But that was through kind of just being, just pegging at it and keeping writing and keeping writing. Sometimes writing the wrong thing. But carrying on. And making sure that I got through it. And I don't know why. I don't know why I could have given up and got a much better paid job doing something else. <laughs> but it's just, you know, I can't really think of anything else I'd rather be doing, really, than making, <laughs> making shit up. What a great way to make a kind of living. <laughs> well, I wanted to, uh, to the, um, talk about a few specifics um, of the sort of the craft, and particularly that sort of um, gripping readers um, in that sort of the early portions of, of the book. I mean, a handful of examples that I could kind of think of, and again, cinema is a great sort of place to, to draw these ideas from. Um, I think increasingly it seems that we're set up often with a prologue, with the, the protagonist doing something, action, heroic, solving a crime, etc., that then we pivot to the sort of um, the, the run, the, the start of the rest of the, uh, the story. But things on that list might include cliffhangers, mysteries, surprises and twists, like sub and parallel plots, uh, and of course, conflict. Are there, are there other kinds of device and things that you may consciously or unconsciously have in mind that you know that you can deploy to, to make promises and to, to grip your audience, to those readers? Yeah, uh, the way you frame that makes it sound like um, there's a kind of toolbox that you can have. And I think that that kind of, uh, oh, oh, God, I wish. <laughs> of course, <laughs> but, of course. But, I mean, yeah, each story has its own requirements. The thing is with domestic noir is that we're supposed to always kind of put twists in. And a twist is a structural thing. Um, it's not a kind of it's not a kind of about face. It has to be something that's so embedded structurally that when it happens the reader who hasn't seen it coming will go, oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> so that's what you've got to do. And, you know, sometimes, you know, when the editor says, this is working really, really well, but what we need is one final twist. Yeah. <laughs> and every writer goes, oh, no. And I think that some of us wish that we could just get away with no twist, but the readers really expect it. I, as a reader, really expect a twist now. Even if I'm reading literary fiction, I'm going, where's the twist? What's going to happen? I w but then, you know, I read with a crime writer's mind. I always expect terrible <laughs> things to happen. I've just read uh, my friend Josie Lloyd's amazing, wonderful, heartwarming book called Life Saving for Beginners. And it's, it's just totally wonderful, positive book about sea swimming. And I read it and I was thinking... When, when are they going to drown? When's, when's the shark going to come? And, and yeah, so, so, so it's about injecting tension, isn't it? It's, um, that's what I do as a crime writer. That's what I like to do. So ways of injecting tension are throwing, I mean, throwing a metaphorical bomb into the proceedings. So, you know, uh, and that could be a revelation. It could be someone turning up. It could be spotting someone across the road. It could be a literal bomb. It could be... Uh, an animal charging at them you know it could be anything that kind of then shakes things up so things if things are getting slow um 
bring in a plot element that has to be advanced, a story element that has to be advanced, and just plonk it there right in the middle somehow. And that can be really, really helpful. But the twist, the twists, uh, sometimes you, you've already planned them as a writer, and obviously now I do plan them, but uh, sometimes twists can kind of come to you as you're writing, and sometimes they can come to you after you've written, so you kind of reverse engineer them. So, so that's the other thing I think is reverse engineering is really, really useful. And don't think that you have to write from A to B, A to Z. Uh, you can kind of, you could, if you have written to A to Z and you decide that something needs to be in at X, you can then go back and plant it in B. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You can go and hang that rifle on the on the wall if you need it. And I think I've probably Stephen King, but certainly um, I've I've heard it said that it's better to, to let the twists or the mysteries come towards the end because if you're you need to write them without knowing they're there because the reader will also read them in that way. Whereas if you're constantly nudge, nudge, wink, wink, rifle on the wall, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, rifle on the wall, you know, throughout your book, the twist will not be one. It will not be a surprise. You'll have loaded it all along the way. Yeah. Or well, the, uh, the other, the, other the, 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 the converse of that argument is that, that if you know that you've got to make um, character X out to be... If you know that he that he's going to be turn out to be the serial killer throughout the whole novel, you 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 make him into a pussycat, and you work really hard to make him into a pussycat, yeah, so that you I, don't see it I, coming. So so that you know you you know you know what you're working against. That, I think that that comes with experience. That you know you you know you 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 learn how to mislead people. <laughs> yes, and I just I wonder as well. This is we sort of get towards the end is any great examples or any particular favorites of yours brilliantly gripping opening chapters or, or the starts of novels but also any that you've seen through through teaching and we're obviously we won't name names but of where things were not gripping but that subsequently after feedback the person did tackle that and what they did to to tackle that i've, I've just recently reread rebecca and and the framing device in that is so brilliant. You know, the opening line. It's, I, I, I'm not going to misquote it, but, you know, the one about Mandalay. <laughs> it's, it, I was going to say it's so memorable. <laughs> but the, the story has already happened and it's, everything has unravelled and we're looking at it from, from, from then. Um, and then we go back. It's just the the way that time is manipulated there. It's 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 so wonderful. So so the thing with beginning writers is that there is a desire to set out the whole world before you start telling the story. And somebody sent me a, a first draft of their novel, and I said, you know what you could do? You could cut the first three chapters. And he did that, and it and it was so much better, so much better. Uh, start in medias res, you know, start in the middle of the action and. You only need the reader to know enough to understand what's going on right then. You don't need to know the whole history and everything. If if that is important for the story, you can drop that in later. But if you're going to start, start with the with the kind of the, the inciting incident, the action. So, for example, with Cuckoo, although it starts in a kind of very kind of uh, Argus Saga way before it turns into a nasty Argus Saga, the first thing that happens is the phone call from Polly, the old friend saying that her husband's died in Greece and she needs somewhere to stay. So, you know, that is the, mo- that is the action moment there. It's not, it's not, high, it's not high tension, not, not high drama, but it is a, a big change in, in a life, you know. It's kind of... The only setup I needed there was just the beautiful... They, they, 
uh, Rose and Gareth, the, the, the Rose, the, protagonist, the main protagonist, and her husband Gareth have just settled down to a glass of wine in their meticulously and painstakingly restored house just outside Bath. And they're sitting there and the sun's playing on the flagstones or some, something. And the phone rings. We can't do Return of the Native anymore. It's, you know, four chapters of a character walking across a landscape or whatever. <laughs> I'm sure I exaggerate, yeah. but I remember going, oh my God, is he still walking across that hill <laughs> when I read it? Yeah. It's interesting, a couple of um, podcasts ago was talking about On the Road, which when I was 19, again, I think the setting that I would get to through Kerouac's eyes, you know, drive across America in the 40s and 50s. But actually, I reread it a couple of years ago, and it, it's, it's almost unreadable because other than that setting, it just, it seems like a straight line. Um, do, you think, do you think that's because you've changed as a reader? Absolutely. Or do you think it's that culturally what we've come to expect is more narrative? Because of, of the way we I consume suppose, narrative now. Yeah. I guess the latter informs the former, right? Is that, you know, as I become a more, if not mature, certainly older um, reader and have read more widely, because, you know, again, reading it at 19, I think I'd read like The Very Hungry Caterpillar um, and then the Miles Davis autobiography and not much beyond that. So On the Road was sort of fresh and exciting at that moment. So, and maybe as we study writing, uh, sorry, yeah, writing and, and read more, you are reading as a writer. And I think actually it was Miles Davis who said, you know, when you're classically trained, you don't hear a song, you hear chord progressions and notes picked out. And so as we, as we read, we're reading, ah, that's the prologue, that's the hook, that's the promise. So maybe reading On the Road at age 40 was just a bit, yeah, I was sort of, you know, where's the reversal? Where's the climax? Where's the character development? Where's the... But um, yes, interesting. Um, interesting that you say that actually it's cutting of the chapters at the beginning rather than putting things in. Yeah. I mean, for some writers, it's different. I, uh, I've got a great friend, Colette Macbeth, who's a wonderful writer, and she always writes short, you know, perhaps forty to 50,000 words, and then has to build the writing for the second draft. I always write long. I mean, I always... My first draft rarely... Well, ne- have never come in at fewer than 120,000 words. And 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 the, with my latest, the daughters, um, it that was one hundred twenty thousand words. It's barely eighty now. I I skimmed it so much. I was really, I really, really enjoyed that though. It's so wonderful. It's like it's like the oh, it's just great. Kind of going that's unnecessary. And it's sort of so you do that by cutting out chunks first of all, and then you go to it again and you cut out kind of sentences. And then you go through it again and you cut out words. So, like, if anyone wants a quick fix to getting their word count down, word search that, because we overuse that so much. Um, you can often lose a that in a sentence. Um, and, and also, I, I, I applied, a, it sounds like a really arbitrary. Um, setting yourself rules can be very useful and can be very helpful in a creative act. Um, and I learned that on my MA as well, that, you know, that, 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 that rules and kind of, you know, guidelines for yourself can just be a, a useful part of your, your, your toolbox. Um, no chapter longer than 2,000 words. So I kept on, if, if one came in at 2,100 words, I keep on skimming, skimming away, little razor blade slices of words here and there until I got down to 2,000. And that was such fun. And it makes the prose tighter and tighter. And I'm going to do that for every single novel now. No chapter longer than 2,000 words. But also kind of 2,000 words is... I, I, read, I read in the bath. If, if a chapter's longer than 2,000 words, I go pruny. 
Né? Right. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, Julia, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Uh, there's just what a wealth of fantastic advice and insights in there that certainly from my own uh, sort of hobby writing, I can sort of feel that the tightening, um, getting it gripping straight straight from the off. So thank you so much for talking to us. Thanks, Gil. A big thank you to Julia for her time. If you have questions or want to get in touch, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Writer Centre. And you'll find us on Facebook by searching National Centre for Writing. Don't forget to sign up to our weekly newsletter by visiting nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk and clicking the orange drop-down box on the homepage. As a UK-registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. You can make a donation over on the website today by hitting the Support Us button in the top nav. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review us because it helps other writers to find the podcast. Thanks again, keep writing and we'll catch you on the next episode.